All right, turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9. So if you go to the Gospels and hang a right, you'll hit Acts, Acts chapter 9. And while you find that, I'll tell you that uh, I know that we taught through Acts uh, four years ago, but I just want to assure you that this is not a twice-baked potato. Um, uh, I have not uh, used any portion of... Uh, my studies or my sermon from four years ago. So this is completely fresh, uh, just what God has laid on my heart for you today. So this is uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 1, and this is God's word. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, the, cap- the capital W, that's the church, uh, Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he wants to capture Christians. Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord uh, said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's kind of an old joke, an old story. Uh, Some of you may have heard it, but uh, it goes like this. A man walks into a public restroom, and he sees another man standing over a dirty commode. And the man standing over the dirty commode pulls out his wallet and takes out a $100 bill and throws it in the toilet. And the guy who is observing this says, 
why did you just do that? And the guy who threw the $100 bill in the toilet said, well, you don't think I'm going to stick my hand in there for a quarter? <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sam. The, br- the brightest man in the room. Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, what is the condition of that quarter? The condition of that quarter is it's filthy. Um, the condition of that quarter is it's not worth much considering the circumstances. I mean, it, were there not some bigger price tag in there, the guy was going to let it go. Uh, what's the condition of that quarter? It's alone. What's the condition of that quarter? It is helpless. Why can't it help itself? Because it is not living. It is not able to help itself. And the only thing that changes the path of the outcome of that quarter from a dark, dismal sewer system and a nice, hot, soapy wash in the tap is that someone else has come in, put his hand in there, and plucked out from uh, the, the depth um, this, this thing that needs rescuing. All right? So if you want to know what the big idea is today, I think it is uh, this that God sovereignly saves sinners. Now, if you've been uh, in a church for any length of time, you may see that and you go, oh, God sovereignly saves sinners, and you go, oh, yeah, um, yeah um, how about come up with something a little bit more creative than that? Or you might be looking at that going, yeah, we know that. Tell us something that we need, uh, so, you know, like how to you know, live or, and stuff like that. And, uh, and I would say to you, ladies and gentlemen, if God sovereignly saving sinners is boring to you, or too familiar to you, it's only because you do not understand the holiness, the justice, the white-hot purity of the nature of this God. If he really is this way, then that he sovereignly saves sinners is a very big point. You know, um, I'm quoted, or at least I, you, you, you tell me that I'm being quoted. You'll say, hey, I quoted you the other day, and then you'll tell me what I said, and I'm like, that's not what, exactly what I said. Uh, so I'm, I'm misquoted a lot. And uh, one of the ways I'm misquoted is this thing that I've told you a bunch of times, which is, let's say you get transferred to Seattle and uh, you have to look for a new church. My advice to you over the years has been this, that you go, you, you research, check it out, uh, see if they're theologically sound and all that. And then you go, you visit for three weeks and you listen for two words. And this is where people, you know, people, they, they mess up the two words. They think grace and there's some other ones. But here are the two words that I always try to tell you. Uh, go to a church, listen for these two words. If you hear the preacher say them and if you hear the music, play them. If, if, if you're singing them and you hear the preacher say them, then it's a safe place. Here are the two words, holy and blood. If you go to a church and you don't hear the words holy and blood, get the heck out. Because I don't know what kind of gospel message they're preaching, but it's not this one. Um, Holy and blood are the two words that you need to pay attention to because uh, without God's holiness, um, you don't understand your own position and, and what God is like. And without blood, you don't understand what the Savior accomplished on the cross. Not just a good example, but a blood payment because of God's holiness. Those are the two words. All right, so let's explore all that together. Um, our first point is from murder to light to darkness. And I'm talking about what uh, Saul of Tarsus here has uh, experienced. Uh, most of you probably know that, um, uh, that uh, the conversion of Saul is recorded three times in the book of Acts, in chapter 9 and then 22, I think, and then 26. Three times it's recorded. Um, and I also would tell you, just so you're not tripping up, um, Saul is the Hebrew name. Paul is the 
uh, uh, Roman name. Okay, so if I if I move to Latin America, I might just say, you know what, just call me Jaime, uh, and that's what that's the that's the Saul Paul thing. So at some point, it's Saul and Paul are the same guy. Um, but you might also know that uh, that Luke wrote the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and Luke also wrote Acts. And those two books come as a package unit, and they have a flow. And uh, it's the same theme throughout, which is that Jesus accomplished all that is required for salvation, and he continues that work, his ministry work, he continues it through the church that he established. That's Luke and Acts put together. Jesus accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished for salvation. He continues his ministry work through the church that he established. And so, no one in the formation of the early church is more important for it than the Apostle Paul, the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Without Paul, of course, we wouldn't have a whole bunch of the New Testament. God used him to write a lot of the New Testament. God used him to uh, uh, clearly articulate the gospel and pull in the Old Testament as a support for it. I mean, that's when it says that he's, uh, he goes to Damascus and he's confounding the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Christ, what he's doing is he's taking their Old Testament, their Bible, and saying, do you not see how this is fulfilled in Jesus? He's proving uh, that Jesus is the Christ. And so, yeah, that's, that's all very important. But um, one of the significant things also about the life of Saul of Tarsus is this vivid message to the early church. It's a vivid message and the observing world that God sovereignly saves sinners. Now let's go to the passage uh, in front of us. Verse one, um, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anybody belonging to the Christian church, belief system, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he... Um, he is uh, breathing threats and murder. Now, if you look that up in other Bible translations, almost every translation puts it that way, that he's breathing threats or breathing out threats. Um, the New Living Translation says he, uh, he had threats with every breath, and I'm not sure that exactly uh, gets it. What's interesting about this particular account in, in uh, Acts 9 is that of the three accounts of Saul's conversion in the book of Acts, two are in Saul's own words. All right, so he's explaining, here's what happened to me. Mm. This is in the narrator's words. This account is in Luke's words, and he's trying to say something. He's trying to set something up. Um, and uh, here's, you know, in, in, in chapter 8, verse uh, 3, um, it says that, um, yeah, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. That's how he felt about Christianity. He was going from house to house, tearing families apart, dragging people off to prison. That's what he wanted to do on his way to Damascus is go bind them, imprison them, arrest them. Um, and uh, if, you, if you look up, a, do a word study on that, ravaging the church, it's interesting that, you know, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament written in Greek is called the Septuagint. Do you know that? The Old Testament written in Greek is called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, it uses that ravaging word uh, in Psalm 80, verse 13. And the idea of that word is ravages, consumes, wastes, ruins, tears, devours. It's kind of like a cheetah on a wildebeest. Uh, Tearing and devouring is the idea. And also here in our passage, in verse 21, it says, uh, you know, the people are like, wait, 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 you know, Saul's a Christian? Are you kidding me? Is this not the guy uh, who was raising havoc in Jerusalem? Well, that word havoc, if you looked it up in in Galatians... um, 
It's Paul's own description of what he was doing, that he was raising havoc. He was doing this thing to the church. Well, the idea there is wasting the church, destroying the church. One translator um, that I read uh, translated it mauled. So what Luke is trying to do is set up this kind of fuming, kind of a a snorting bull in 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 the ring kind of a thing. That was his attitude toward the church. And what Luke is doing is he's framing the Apostle Paul, this Saul Paul guy, um, in the impossible to save light. He's, he's going, look, I'm going to tell you about the, the, the conversion of this guy, uh, but what I really want you to know about him is he is really um, not convertible. <laughs> I mean, uh, he is just the opposite of the gospel. He's, he's as antichrist as you could be. And by the way, there wasn't a person more expertly opposed to the gospel. He was expertly opposed to the gospel. Um, he was Jewish. Uh, he was a Roman citizen. He was educated, and not just educated, but educated by like the best rabbi who was the son of the other best rabbi. I mean, he knew the Old Testament. He was a Pharisee. He was a scholar. Uh, there was nobody like him. He was, he was totally unique, uh, and that's why God chose him. So look at verse 2. He asked for letters uh, and so on. He's going to Damascus. Now, on his way, here's the story. On his way, uh, he's a, he approaches Damascus, and this light from heaven flashes around him. He falls to the ground. He hears a voice. The guys with him hear it too, but they don't see anything. And the voice is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And of course, the message is, if you're per- persecuting my church, you are persecuting me. Why are you persecuting me while you persecute these other people? And uh, Saul says, who are you, Lord? And, and he says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Uh, go into the city. And so he's blind. He comes up, and they, they walk him into the city. And you can imagine that he might be kind of uh, freaked out. Uh, he's suddenly blind. He sees this uh, light. He hears this voice. It's identified as Jesus. And he's like, uh, you mean the guy that I hate and the guy that I think is dead and uh, the guy whose church I'm persecuting, that guy. So he's got three days of blindness. He neither eats nor drinks. Now, here's how the Apostle Paul himself describes what happened to him. Here's what he says. He says this in Philippians 3.12. He said, Christ made me his own. And we go, oh, that's cool. He made me his own. That's very sweet on a greeting card. You know, Christ made me his own. But the idea there is uh, other translations say, Christ took hold of me. If you've got a King James Version, Iran, it says that Christ apprehended me, like in an arrest, when they go, (laughs) they get you. Um, That's how Paul describes what happened to him. Uh, Also, in 1 Timothy 1.4, he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, uh, poured out exceeding abundantly, other translations say. That's how he describes it himself. It's like, it's like I got seized in a vice grip, and then God poured out grace on me. Is that not a wonderful picture? Well, how does that happen? Well, you know, seeing a light from heaven and being blinded and being told something by God doesn't hurt. Um, but, you know, folks, um, you, you have to be really careful when you handle this book. Um, there are four Gospels, right? And it would be very easy to make a homogenized gospel. You say, well, you know what? Let's, uh, let's put all these gospels together and just mash them into one big gospel. You know why that would be a bad idea? Because you have four gospels written by four different people to four different audiences with different perspectives, and God is using those to give us different insights into the gospel. 
All right, so to, to, to create a homogenized gospel would be a terrible mistake. And yet at the same time, we're reasonable people. We know there are four gospels and that we're supposed to be looking at each one and comparing one another. And I think it's that way too with these three accounts of Saul's conversion. We are not to make a homogenized conversion, but we are invited uh, and it's even proper for us to look at those other two accounts and say, wow, what, what does Paul say in his own words when he tells the stories a couple different ways? What does he recall? What does he put in there? Well, one of the things that he puts in there in, in chapter 26 is Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he adds this that Jesus had said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, goad is a strange word, G-O-A-D. If we goad somebody, we know what that means. We're like poking them, prodding them, right? Well, that's the idea. Um, when somebody would plow uh, and they had a stubborn couple of oxes in front of them and the oxes didn't want it, when they go, yeah, Simba, and uh, they, they were supposed to go and they're like, hey, forget you, buddy, and they try to kick, they put pointy things behind them on the plow. So they kick against, ah, the goads, ah, okay, I get it, forward. And Jesus is saying, hey, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And one thing that I haven't thought of before, which has been kind of delightful to my heart, is I'm, I'm thinking, what are the goads? I mean, I know what spiky things are, but Jesus says, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. What were the goads for Saul of Tarsus? What were they? What, what was it hard for him to kick against? Well, you know, I mean, I just started kind of thumbing through here going, well, you know, he did watch Stephen die and be stoned to death. And he did see Stephen um, asking God for the forgiveness of those who stoned him. That's probably pretty penetrating memory. That might have been a goad. Um, how about this? He saw the furtherance of the Christian church without violence. There were no car bombs. There were only these humble Christians who seemed to love each other and live in community and share and kind of have this otherworldly connection. A uh, very strange thing to witness this uh, expansion of the church without swords. That might have been a goad. How about this? He understood the Old Testament with proficiency. I mean, he was unique. He was, he was as educated as a guy could be. He was an, as educated um, and as Jewish. He was a Hebrew's Hebrew. He, you know, he was an educated Hebrew's Hebrew. He had the whole Old Testament at his disposal. That might have been a goad. To, uh, going, huh, Jesus is claiming that he's the fulfillment? It sort of makes sense, but I don't believe it's this guy. Uh, that might have been a goad. And how about this? He experienced a personal encounter with Jesus. Um, that, that, that would have been pretty big. How about this? He watched Christians suffer. He made Christians suffer and saw them do that without denying their Savior. I bet that's a pretty hard goad to kick against. I bet, I bet it's the same goad that some people see in you. They go, you know what? Uh, we think those Christians are insane. They believe in cuckoo things. But boy, they sure do love each other. It's very strange. Um, they do not deny their Savior, even, even in the face of ridicule. Very strange. Maybe those were goads. Well, an application for your life is this, ladies and gentlemen. Why does this all, all this matter to you? I ask you, what are your goads? What is it hard to kick against? What, 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 what prods your spirit? Is it looking at a broken world that's all around you? I mean, every single day there's a shooting or there's a bombing or there's a 
natural disaster. And I mean, you just see the brokenness in the world all around you, the flooding and all that. And, and uh, the, the Islam conference we're going to have. And I mean, how do, we, how do we reach those people for Christ? Um, maybe that's a goad that you, that you kick against. How about this? How about the burdens of your past? How about the things you carry around with you? You know, the things on your pillow at night. I mean, it's, there, there's some heavy suitcases that each one of us are lugging around. And some of them are visible. Uh, some of them aren't visible. Uh, some of them are very private, but heavy burdens indeed. Maybe that's a goad for you. How about witnessing someone who's otherworldly in this life, as I, as I, as I addressed? You, you look at Christians and you go, man, there's something not just different about their little club they're in, but I mean, it's otherworldly. It's like supernatural almost. Uh, how about the persistence of God? Maybe that's a goad. You know, um, I've told you this before and I have to be careful about it. I've got to make sure there's no like tiny children in the room. Any tiny children in the room? I don't think there are. Uh, one? How, how tiny? Okay, good. Well, hey, uh, I'll let you know when to plug your ears. Um, Anne Lamott, you ever heard the name Anne Lamott? She's an author. Um, well, she, um, she tells her conversion story, and uh, she, was, she was like living with friends because her life was, had fallen apart. Uh, she had had an abortion, and it didn't go well, and uh, she was having this, this issue of blood that she couldn't get under control. She was sick. She didn't feel good, and uh, she was also a raging alcoholic, and she was drinking all of her friends' uh, booze and all that stuff and, and buying cheaper booze and then bringing it back and filling up the good booze bottles with the cheap booze bottles. And, and uh, she, was just, was, she was just falling apart. And was, she was, kept going by this church and kept hearing the singing and kept wandering in. And God kind of used that. She couldn't stand the preacher, but she liked the singing. And she would look around and see the people singing going, what are they doing. This is a, such an odd behavior, you know? And she said that Jesus followed her around and followed her around and followed her around like a cat who wouldn't leave her alone. And in her sinner's prayer, here's where you can plug the ears. In her sinner's prayer, she uses the F word. Now, you may go, okay, we can unplug. You may go, oh, that's horrible. Well, God wouldn't hear that. I say to you, you are high-minded, and you probably don't understand grace, and you, you worry me. You worry me, um, because this is a person who is, who is at the bottom. Jesus is following around her like a cat. She can't stand it anymore, and she surrenders her life in the rawest, most real, the only terms she knows how to say. She doesn't know how to go, and all this religious stuff. All she knows to do is say, I'm a quarter at the bottom of a toilet, now get me out. The goads are hard to kick against of this uh, heavenly plowmaster. You know what Jesus says? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And friends, that is what the Savior is in the business of doing. All right, our next point. From darkness to light to brotherhood. So if we pick him up and he's blinded. And um, uh, let's remind you in verse 9, for three days he was out sight and neither ate nor drank. So um, imagine what a non-diagnosed blindness uh, might be. 
feel like to you? I mean, humility would be a part of it, and, and you grasp that Jesus really might be this one that uh, he says he was. And in verse 10, it says, there's a dis- disciple, his name's Ananias. And to be honest, the, this, uh, this guy, Ananias, is really what drew me to this passage, because I think we kind of see this guy and brush over him. But this guy's in a crisis of faith, too. The Lord says to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord. The Lord says, rise and go to the street called Straight. And uh, Saul of Tarsus is going to be there. He's going to be praying. And uh, he, you're going to lay hands on him and restore his sight. And Ananias is like, um, <clears throat> uh, wait a second. Um, he's like, um, uh, Lord, verse 13, uh, I've heard, uh, m- 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 Heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints. He's got authority from the chief priest to, to arrest us and to carry us away. Uh, that's, that's the one you're talking about? I mean, that's quite a little crisis of faith that he's got to come to. And uh, so I would say that that's a valid concern, wouldn't you? Uh, I don't think we need to beat up on poor Ananias. I would think that's a valid concern. Uh, and by the way, in verse 17, it says that Ananias departed and entered the house. So he obeyed and he went. All right, so I don't think we should be too tough on him. God had told him, I'm going to do this thing. Well, you know, you could do a whole verse, a whole sermon on verse 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You could do a whole sermon on that, I think. But I think what it's saying is this, basically, that Paul, what he's going to experience as a Christian in service to Jesus Christ is so opposite of what he believed in his man-made understanding that he is going to feel it profoundly deeply. I think that's what that's saying there. All right. But to continue, verse 17, Ananias does it. He lays hands on him. And uh, this I find so tender and wonderful. He says, okay, God, you've you've sent me to lay hands on this guy and restore his sight. Um, But he's this bad guy who wants to kill us. And uh, it's kind of scary, but I'm going to obey and I'm going to go. He does it. Now think of what it would have been like for Saul. He's blind. He's been blind for three days. Um, He knows that he's been trying to kill Christians. He knows that they're scared of him. Do you think that any Christians ever had a conversation with Saul? You know, he arrests them, haul them off, get them out. Mommy, daddy, no, shut up, kid. Throw him in jail. Um, They were scared of him. There there wasn't like wonderful dialogue. Uh, They were afraid of him. He, He very likely had not had a personal conversation with a believer in Jesus Christ. And and I'm just guessing, okay? But what does he feel in his darkness but hands on his shoulders? It's Ananias. And what words does he hear? He hears, Brother Saul. Those may be the first words he ever had spoken to him personally from a Christian in dialogue. Brother Saul. Is that not dripping with grace? Is that not dripping with trust in the God who is able to save and clean up and send? Here's how I'd like to apply this to your life. Um, Here are three serial killers for you. Son of Sam. Did you know that Son of Sam became a Christian in prison and leads men's Bible studies? Did you know that? Son of Sam who had New York paralyzed? Um. Did you know that Susan Atkins, you know who that is? She was one of the Manson girls, Sexy Sadie. She was the scariest of the Manson girls. They were scared of her in the courtroom. Do you know that she's the one who stabbed Sharon Tate 16 times while she was carrying life? That's, that's her. 
Do you know that she became a Christian or at least professed to become a Christian in prison? She died of brain cancer about 10 years ago. Um, how about this? Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, that's a bad dude. Cannibalism, decapitation, other multisyllabic words that a child couldn't understand. Um, scary stuff. But it's, it's been said, there's a pastor who's written a book that said that uh, Jeffrey Dahmer became a Christian in, in prison before he was killed by an inmate. Now, I wasn't there, and I don't know these guys or this, this lady, and I don't know if those are, I, I, can't, I can't say I believe Son of Sam is a Christian because I've seen videos of him, and, uh, and uh, I think he's a beloved, solid brother. Um, but these other two, I don't know. But, but ladies and gentlemen, my point is this. Um, you know, one college professor said of Jeffrey Dahmer, if Jeffrey Dahmer's in heaven, I don't want to be there. Well, friends, you may be thinking that. Oh, how could that be? I mean, but you know, the point is no one is beyond God's saving hand. I, if you have a problem with Jeffrey Dahmer or sexy Sadie or um, son of Sam, then, then you, you, have a, you probably have a, a grace problem in your own soul. If you, if you think, ah, oh, I can't believe God would say something like that, then I have to say, I don't even know if you're a Christian. Hey, here's an illustration for you. Have you ever seen somebody, um, they were a Christian their whole lives, and uh, they can't point to a certain date, they don't have some plaque on the wall, uh, but they say, yeah, you know, as long as I, as long as I have lived. I just believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that he died for my sins on the cross. I believe that uh, without Jesus Christ, I can't get to heaven. Um, I uh, believe that he lived a perfect life, the life that I was supposed to live, that I didn't live because I'm a sinner and I feel shame and guilt. Uh, He lived the perfect one. He died on the cross in my place, and then I get his righteousness. And I mean, if, if that's you, and you don't remember a date, as long as I've ever lived, I believe that. Isn't it interesting that you'll stand side by side with those same people and they'll sing things like, they'll sing things about when I was lost in my sin. And uh, they'll sing things about their arrogance and their need for humility. And you know what I'm talking about? Isn't it interesting that people who who can't ever remember not being a believer will go out there and sing standing next to each other, just remembering um, sinfulness. Is that some of you? I bet it is. Um, well, you know what that's just proved to your soul? Is that you realize that you are born in sin. You might have been five years old, you might have been seven, 13, whatever, but you realize that you've been born in sin and your soul has gripped the fact that you are on par with Jeffrey Dahmer. A sin separates you from the God of holiness. Any sin. And any sinner needs a savior. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, we're in the home stretch. Our last point. From proclaiming to confounding to proving. Um, Verses 19 and following, halfway through 19, it says, For some days Saul was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. And uh, and his message was, he's the Son of God. And people hear him and they go, Is this not the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem, who called upon his name, and he's come to kill us? Is this not the one? Uh, Yeah, it is the one. And uh, Saul increased more in strength. He confounded the Jews. He keeps pointing to the Old Testament. He's proving that Jesus is the Christ. Wow. Now, where does Saul go? Where does, where does Paul go? He goes to the synagogues. 
That's where the worshiping Jewish people are. What does he do? He confounds the Jews. How? By proving that Jesus is the Christ. And does that sound ambiguous at all? I don't think it does. He says, hey, everybody, I was wrong. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. Very clear message. Paul believes that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. All right, a couple more things will be done. Application for your life. I don't think conversion is that great of a word. When we say, oh, this is a conversion of Saul, you know what I mean, he was, becomes a Christian. Um, or we say, uh, hey, yeah, when were you converted to Jesus Christ? When were you converted? Oh, yes, I was 17 at camp. I was converted. You know, for Saul, I'm not sure that conversion's the best word um, because we think conversion equals switching religions. Um, Saul didn't switch religions. He saw the Old Testament and it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's, it's just that he got it right for the first time because God enabled his heart to get it right. And notice too that Saul, he reasoned, he thought, he questioned. He says, and when he's confronted with Jesus, who are you, Lord? Um, in uh, Acts, I think it's in chapter 22, that's where he says, uh, what shall I do, Lord? You know, so he's, there's dialogue. He's, he's using his mind. He's rationally thinking. He's going back and forth. What would you have me do? And at the same time, God sends in a vivid stroke healing for the soul. Um, he, he, um, he, um, he brings him into a saving faith that wasn't there before. I close with this, friends. Um, I visited uh, Jim Kimberlin in the hospital yesterday. And uh, it is bleak. It is bleak. I mean, he is, he is kept alive by machines. He's 58 years old. He was a, a brilliant attorney years ago, and, um, and there he lays. And um, as I was uh, out on my patio last night with this, um, I was praying. And I said, you know, Lord, I said, I was very near death today. I was near death, um, but now I'm near life. And uh, this is life, ladies and gentlemen. The gospel is life. Um, it's not a club. It's not a commitment. You don't get yourself a little co-pilot to help you through. It is life everlasting, life eternal, life that God has given you because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, here, here's, a, here's a song I'm going to sing for you. You've, you've sung it many times here, and with this we'll close. I was blinded by my sin. Had no ears to hear your voice. Did not know your love within. Had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life. Opened up your word to me. Through the gospel of your son. Gave me endless hope and peace. Ladies and gentlemen, that is what the God of the Bible is in the business of doing. Giving life, opening up his word that we might receive the free gift of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled. Um, this world really is broken, and we're broken too. And uh, we lug around balls and chains and, and uh, pasts and sins and heartaches and the pressures of the, of, of the day. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that you have not given up on your creation, but you have reached down into the filth and you've provided a way 
into cleanliness. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for what Jesus accomplished on the cross, and we pray in his name that you would draw each one of us close to you in your own way, in your own time, uh, in your Son, and in the opening of your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.